Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Popular Music. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, my guest is journalist D.X. Ferris. Ferris has written Slayer, 66 and two-thirds, The Jeff and Dave Years, which he published on his own 6623 Press just a couple of weeks ago. For those of you who are regular listeners of the podcast, you'll probably recall that I spoke to D.X. about two months ago about his book on Slayer's landmark album, Rain and Blood. Ferris's new book, rather than focusing on just one album, is a comprehensive history of the band from its beginnings to its current status in 2013. I had a great conversation with DX. He's very entertaining to listen to, and I learned a lot more about uh, one of the most important bands in the history of heavy metal and really, in some ways, in the history of pop music. So thanks for listening in, and here it is. Hey, DX. Hey, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for joining us again on the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. It is a uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be back here. The last time I was just dying to talk about this thing, but it was a top secret project, and now I am very happy to be able to discuss it. Well, as, as you know, um, you know, we always have an open invitation to authors to come back on uh, New Books Network after they complete a new book, and this is actually the quickest turnaround uh, <laughs> that I've ever had. But that's uh, I think because we got to the Slayer book a little bit late after publication. But uh, you have just published Slayer 66 and two-thirds, the Jeff and Dave years, which is out via Amazon. Um, And we'll start, I guess, off with our traditional first question, which is um, tell us a little bit about yourself for people who haven't heard your other podcast. Oh, wow. What? uh, I don't know what to say. Uh, My name is uh, Ferris. Um, I write under the name DX Ferris, which is an old high school nickname that kind of stuck and used to irritate me but when the internet became a thing it you know if you look for david ferris on the internet then you would find an engineer in michigan or a tech journalist in california so uh the old high school nickname kind of stuck uh i am an ohio society of professional journalists reporter of the year 2011 um and i'm a lifelong metalhead so it kind of took all of my life experience between both of those realms, journalism and metal, to put this book out into the world and make it happen, which nearly, nearly drove me over the edge. But somehow it, uh, it finished. You know, the book, the book wanted to exist on its own terms, and it made me do things its way. Well, we'll we'll talk all about the uh, the genesis of of this book. But um, I, I guess the first question I wanted to ask you is, you know, sometimes when People consider a topic, you know, it's easy to look back on something that happened 200 years ago and say, well, we should write a book about that. But Slayer is still an ongoing entity. And very much. Why? Why now? Why? Why this book now? Man, well, the genesis of it was, and even stepping aside for a minute, I, I didn't set out to write a full length Slayer biography with 59 chapters and 400 footnotes and three appendices and 110,000 words, not counting the references section. It just kind of happened, which I, I swear I'm not kidding when I say that. Uh, Dave Lombardo, the band's drummer, the most acclaimed and influential drummer in the history of metal, he left the band for the third and very likely final time uh, in February 2013. Or, or rather, he and the band parted ways for the third time. And when that happened, um, obviously, it was nothing new. It had happened twice before. And as somebody that follows Slayer a little bit, I thought, oh, this is nothing new. You know, the band is always picking on this poor guy. Uh, he's in the unenviable position of being the band's most influential are not, I'm sorry, the most acclaimed musician within the band. Mm-hmm. I mean, Carrie King... Sure. Uh, um, Jeff Hanneman, you know, certainly acclaimed guitarists, uh, but Dave Lombardo is the guy that people look and say that is the great musician in the band. Right. And 
But within the band itself, he's always the low man on the totem pole. You know, he was always the one getting outvoted and gunned down. And what I perceived to be as an outsider, I thought they, as I said, I thought they were always picking on the poor guy and giving him a raw deal. So when he left the band for the third time, I had read his, uh, his version of things. And it seemed to me that he very much was getting a raw deal. So I thought I would sit down, take some of the stuff that I'd written about the Rain and Blood tour um, that couldn't fit into my previous book, because that's when a lot of the real drama went down uh, with the band. And I thought I would just sit down and write a short ebook and put Dave's conflict with the rest of the band in a historical perspective. And then I doomed myself. I said, no, I'll just do it real quick. And, um, you know, I wanted to have it out by the end of April and nine months later, here we are. Yeah. The, uh, you know, in reading through, uh, 66 and two thirds, one of the things that really comes out is that, uh, it's, it's easy to sympathize with Dave Lombardo. I mean, I think we've all seen relationships, whether they be marriages or siblings, where there's one person who seems to always get picked on and sometimes unfairly and, uh, that's the way it comes through. Is that the way you kind of see the the, the uh, trajectory of Slayer's relationship with him, that he's sort of just always been the whipping boy? Um, yeah, I mean, he's always been at odds with him. He has different priorities. He seems to be cut from a different cloth. Uh, he's not really one of them. And um, that's important in human interaction to some degree. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're you know, primitive hunters moving in a pack or if you're socializing in high school, or if you're in a football team, or the army, or if you're in a band, if you're not doing exactly what the rest of the pack is doing, eventually somebody's going to look at you and say, what's your problem, man? Why do you always have to be different? And, you know, as I'm sure many of your listeners, myself included, are, I mean, you have to be yourself. You can't just go around and blindly do what everybody you're doing. Right. But eventually, if you're part of an organization, if you don't fall into line, that creates problems. And uh, Dave, very early on, did not fall into line with the rest of those guys, and he created problems, and he created problems that lingered for you know, 25, 30 years. Yeah, I, I should say that you did a tremendous amount of uh, research for this book. Uh, not only did you seem to comb through every single back issue of uh, Cream Magazine and all the other related heavy metal magazines, but you actually were uh, able to get a hold of Lombardo's divorce records, which I know has been sort of a, a um, what the word I'd use, kind of a, a uh, mixed bag for you in terms of that. Um, but you seem to have a really a good sense of the problems internally in the band from all your research. Can you talk a little bit about, um, your decision to use those divorce records and then more generally just about the dynamic within the band? Well, it's, it was a tough, it, I don't want to say it was a tough call to use those. I mean, I'm a journalist and I, I do the job right. So it was not a tough call. I mean, it was the right thing to do to use them, but I wasn't happy about it. I didn't make the decision lightly. You know, I talked it through with a lot of people and I tried to use those records as responsibly as I could. Right. Um, the reason that I felt those were relevant was that Dave historically going back to his first split with the band, you know, the source of the greatest tension within the band was Dave's relationship with his now ex-wife. Right. Early on, they were boyfriend, girlfriend, when they signed to a major label, they had enough money for a tour bus uh, with Rain and Blood. And Dave realized, wait, if I have a bump, the bump can sleep two people. So I want to take my, my new wife on tour. And the rest of the band, young men in the prime of their life, you know, for whatever reasons, they didn't want girlfriends. You know, not all of them had girlfriends at the time, but they didn't want Dave's wife on tour. You know, it wasn't anything... right personal against her. Right. They didn't dislike her, but she was always around. You know, she was not a groupie. She was not a club rat. But Dave always wanted her around. And, you know, that's reasonable. You just got married. Do you want to leave your wife? No. Um, if you're in this metal band that is rapidly becoming one of the kings of metal, do you want the drummer's wife around to stop it when you start having fun? No, you don't want that either. So they had early on that ultimately drove Dave out of the band. Right. And through the course of his career, family was always more important to him mm -hmm. than the band and then his you know, mm -hmm. 
card-carrying metal dude hellion image. You know, Dave does not come off like a metal guy. You know, he always came off as a very, to me, I thought he was a very laid-back family man. That's certainly how he kind of came off in conversation with me. And then I talked to uh, Buzz Osborne, who was played with him, and Buzz uh, looked at me like I was a moron for even asking about that. Like, that guy, Mild, are you kidding me? Um, he's not like that. Right. So, so it, it spoke to his relationship, you know, at a certain point, what became more important to him than the woman that was more important than Slayer. And if you go into those records, um, it kind of makes you reevaluate his relationship with Slayer, with the rest of the band and, uh, you know, provide some hints about, not hints. I mean, it provides some very concrete information about why he left the band, what his problems were with the band in early years and later days. And it also provides some suggestions about what he might do in the future in, in his career as an artist. Well, yeah, one of the things that really uh, leaped out at me when I was reading the book is that Lombardo, when he... Um, you'll have to tell me whether it was the first or the second time he was kicked out of Slayer or, or quit Slayer, depending how you look at it. He actually quit the music business and was doing a nine to five job, which is sort of like Hank Aaron at the prime of his career saying, oh, I'm not going to play baseball. I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to uh, become a painter or something like that. Yeah, the first time he did, he just, uh, he walked away from Slayer. He walked away from metal and cut his hair and was working um, in a stock room, I believe, something like it's in the book. I got it right when I wrote it. But he was working in a stock room and he tried to quit metal and uh, his wife, of all people, talked him back into going into the band. You know, one of the things that I think when you look at some of the great rock bands in history, whether that be Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, uh, Aerosmith down the line, there's always this line between creative tension within the band and then just sort of tension where, you know, you have Joe Perry and Steven Tyler punching each other in the face. Um, while at the same time they're making this great music. What's your your take on that that line there within Slayer with Lombardo? Yeah, I have never been in a band, so maybe I'm talking out my butt, but it, it has always seemed to me that a certain level of tension within the band is good. Um, a couple examples of this. Rage Against the Machine, I'm a huge fan of. Uh, those guys had a famously tense or famously tense relationships with each other. You hear about how their first album was murder and their second album was murder. And then for the third one, they talk about how everybody really got along really well and it, you know, it wasn't nearly as bad this time. And the third Rage Against the Machine album comes out, and I don't think that record has a pulse. Um, you know, they were all getting along, and it's a boring record. Right. Um, what's another example of that? Rob Zombie. Uh, white zombie, you know, he would lock those guys into a room with each other and just make them all practice and say, we're not going to get out until like the song is done. And you can, I think you can feel the tension on those records. I mean, right. It just has a lot more vibe to it. And if you listen to Rob Zombie's solo material, nothing against it, but I think it um, lacks a, a certain quality that is present on those uh, white zombie albums. Right. So I think a certain amount of tension is good. And I, I think that right. May have been part of what propelled Slayer. Right. Well, let's turn our attentions a little bit more to, to heavy metal writ large and, and talk about Slayer's role in there. I think one of the really uh, great observations you make in the book is early on where you talk about, um, for lack of a better term, the metalfication of American popular culture. You talk about Games of Thrones, The Walking Dead. And, you know, I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about your thoughts on how the themes that were probably shocking or disturbing in 1984, 1985, when albums like Rain and Blood, Hell Awaits come out, have become more, just more mainstream. Yeah, they have. I mean, look at the Twilight series. Um, 1984, Slayer were writing songs about vampires. That was pretty shocking. Not shocking, necessarily, but certainly underground. You know, you had to read... Uh, at the time, if you wanted vampires, you had to read a Swamp Thing comic. You know, you had to listen to a Slayer song. You fast forward almost 30 years later, you have Twilight. Right. Um, Twilight is obviously a glam version of vampires, but The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead is the most popular show on television. Right. Not the po most popular within a certain demographic or right. most popular with 18-year-old men. 
I mean, it's The Walking Dead. It's a show set after the zombie apocalypse. Metal. You know? You know, one thing, too, I've, I've really been kind of wrestling with and looking through and reading your book is that heavy metal, as long as I've been a fan, which is since the early 80s, has been about, um, at least for some of the more extreme uh, versions of it, has been about shock value. And so I'm just wondering, where do you think Slayer stands in terms of an artistic um, entity going forward? Um, is Slayer about shocking anymore or are they about something else? No, I mean, I, I don't think that you can shock as easily. I mean, they continue to do what they were. And certainly, if you monitor art, you can tell that you can never really predict the response. I mean, Slayer wrote Angel of Death, and that was a spontaneous controversy. Right. All sorts of people picked up on it. Right. Uh, after 9-11, they write a song like Jihad. Um, nobody really takes notice of it. Okay, whatever. Slayer like writing about shocking stuff. So uh, you can never tell quite what is going to shock a chord. Is it harder to shock people 30 years later? Yes, certainly. I think that's part of it. But I don't think they were ever... I don't think they were the kind of band that set out to do things specifically to be shocking. I think they were just doing what they wanted to do when it turned out to be shocking. Now, I don't think... Yeah, certainly Jeff Hanneman did not sit down and say, I'm going to you know, cash in on the whole Nazi thing and make people turn their heads, you know, not in a way that uh, you know, Sid Vicious or the, uh, the Dead Boys used and exploited the Nazi imagery. Now, now, certainly at a certain point, they adopted it and kind of waved the flag a little bit, but right. I don't think Jeff Hanneman wrote that song in order right. to manufacture any controversy. But they were certainly... Um thinking closely about the image they wanted to project. And that goes down to the visuals. I thought another great part of this book and um, a reason to really pick it up if you're a fan of Slayer or a fan of heavy metal is something I knew nothing about was about the the way the album art was created for their early work. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. The artist's uh, name is Quayar. I think that's yeah, Albert Quayar. Albert Quayar. And so I was really, really interested to learn about they're, they're back and forth with him about the visuals on the uh, Hella Waits album, his his vision for it, how he created the original painting and how that was rejected. You want to talk a little about that and how th those guys really, again, had a vision for what they wanted? Yeah, I mean, uh, the guy that we're talking about, Albert Cuellar, who is a tremendous artist and a, a great guy. I can't speak highly enough of him. He went on to collaborate with Tim Burton and the two of them together um, – put together the exhibition that was the third largest exhibition ever at the Museum of Modern Art in uh, New York behind, uh, I believe it was Picasso and Matisse. And uh, what Cuellar did was he took uh, Tim Burton's drawings and translated them into 3D sculptures, which, I mean, to, to the point that he's a pretty good artist in his own right and can do some amazing things, but this guy got his start doing Slayer artwork. So, in you, as you look at the Slayer artwork, it's one of the rare times that Slayer really had to collaborate with another artist. Right. Because they could not do that themselves. Uh, and they couldn't exactly dictate what they wanted, but they could. Um, I mean, they could tell him what to do and they could vote down his ideas. So it was ultimately kind of them projecting their vision through him in the Live Undead artwork and with Hell Awaits. Which uh, there's some pretty interesting stories behind those, which I go into in the book. And finding that guy, you know, being able to track him down—I mean, that's just a perfect example of something that you could not do five years ago when I was writing the first book. But now, you know, five, six years of internet later, uh, people are more findable. Uh, some people who used to be invisible are not as invisible now. So I was able to find him, and he, being a great guy, was able to give me some uh, unreleased drafts of artwork from Live Undead. Um, you know, an old flyer that he had drawn for Slayer before he had done the actual album work. And you know, he gave me a, a treasure trove of some really great uh, early looks at Slayer iconography. Not to mention Jeff Hanneman's picture. I mean, Jeff Hanneman was the guy who first sketched out the Live Undead cover. Uh, Cuellar had that. He gave that to me, and it's in the book. Uh, I'll spoil it for you. I don't want you to, to buy it thinking that you know, it has this incredible sketch by Jeff Hanneman. It's stick figures. 
still, if you want to see like Jeff Hanneman's little stick figure sketch for what eventually became the live on dead picture disc, I got that. Right. Well, the visuals in the book too, there's, there's tremendous number of uh, photographs I've never seen before. And I think a lot of unpublished photographed, but one, one thing I wanted to, um, to go to again is, is so you were able to track down a number of people who are important to the Slayer story, but who wouldn't talk to you? Let me think. Bill Matoyer, I, I just had trouble getting through to for the longest time. He's one of those people that came through it, not even at the last minute, after the last possible minute. And, and who is he? Uh, Bill Matoyer was the engineer, uh, sort of producer. I think he's... he's Officially credited as engineer on Show No Mercy, on the um, you know the the Haunting the Chapel EP on Halloween's an album that changed my life. Um, just the gremlins were intercepting my emails to him. I could never get through to him. And yeah, that's a perfect example of something where if I were working with a conventional press, they would have said, ah, well, it's nice that you interviewed Bill Matoyer, but it's too late. We can't fit that in. Just put it on the blog. But because I was doing this, uh, you know, myself, 100, 100% independent on my own press, I was able to just drop what I was doing and make that stuff fit. Uh, and it pushed the book back for about a month. I got here a little bit late for Christmas sales, but you know, ultimately I was able to do the book right in the way that I wanted to. Right. So Matoyer talked to me. I was able to get him eventually. Um, I think as far as my wish list goes, I wound up getting everybody that I wanted to. You know, I, I talked to some people before, and then when I had follow-up questions for them, they wouldn't always elaborate. Right. You know, I had talked to Gene Hoagland before, and he uh, he says he can identify the first time a a slam pit broke out at a Slayer show, right. not just stage diving, but an actual slam pit, and I. I thought I could, based on what he told me, I was pretty sure I could track that exact date and location down, and I could not. And I couldn't get him to uh, follow up and specifically provide exactly where and when it happened. Right. So I have a guess. I have right. a very educated guess. But I couldn't always get people to follow up. But uh, at, at the last minute, you know, because I was able to do it the way that I did it, I was able to squeeze in a lot of the people that I thought I would not be able to get well, we, we're going to talk about your, the publishing process here and your decision to go independent. Uh, I think a lot of people in the New Books Network are uh, are thinking a lot about the way publishing is evolving and changing over the last uh, five, seven, ten years, and really now where we're at now. But um, one thing I really wanted to, to get you to talk about is this idea of, well, it's not authorized. In other words, the book isn't authorized by the artist. And I, I wanted to just speak a, a bit about this. I think that this is the new the new trend in some ways with publishing is that, well, if we're going to publish music books, we want X artists to be co-authoring it with somebody else. And I, you know, I have my, uh, I'm going to let you speak at length about this, but I have my own um, thoughts about the pros and cons about this. But what do you think your book delivers that it wouldn't have if it was an authorized book. In other words, so someone looks at this book and they say, you know what? It's not authorized by the band. Why do I want to read this? What is in this book and what value does this book deliver to the reader based on the fact that, hey, you know what? Jeff Hanneman's name's not on the cover. The rest of the band members are not, they're they're not on the cover. Well, you know, I I started, I conceived it as an independent project without a uh, a press behind me. And that's, that's the way that I wound up doing it ultimately. Um, so I never even shopped it around, literally. Uh, once people started hearing about it, I, I got an impressive, I, I got like a half offer from somebody that, you know, is a big name to me. And he said, hey, I'll put this out. Let's, let's partner up. Um, as long as the band sign off, of course. Um, and I had a, a publicist that I wanted to hire to, to promote it for me. And the publicist said, well, yeah, I'll, uh, you know, I'll work it if the band signs off on it, of course. Um, and no, there was no, of course, for me. you know, I just chose not to pursue it. Um, you know, when the band finally learned about the book, I wasn't hiding it from them. Just in journalism, you talk to the subject last. So when they eventually found out about it, they were a little bit you know, taken back that I had not at least asked them or approached them about wanting to make it an official book. 
But if I would have um, made it an official book, I'll go into what content I don't think I could put in it. But I mean, you definitely could not read it right now. I mean, that's a big, complicated process. Right. We take them you know, months of review and get them thinking about if they want this in, right. if they want that story, or if this really reflects well on memory of the late great Jeff Hanneman. And, you know, for the most part, um, you know, I mean, I, I didn't discover a lot of bodies, you know, it's not like Carrie King ever murdered a hooker and, you know, smoked right. cocaine out of the wound on her throat, you know. I mean, they're, on one hand, they're Slayer, but on the other hand, they, you know, certainly, for most of their career, they've lived very squeaky clean lives. Um, they're on front about it, most of them family guys. I never knew what a family guy Jeff Hanneman was. Um, and I mean, that's a guy who met his wife when he was barely out of his teens, uh, maybe, and stayed married to her his whole life. Right. So there wasn't a lot of that. Uh, the band right now is, um, they're locked in a conflict with Lombardo that could turn into litigation, you know, if a push wants to come to shove. So I don't think I could have given a real detailed account of Lombardo's relationship with the band if it had been an official book. And if you can't go that far into detail or if you just have to skirt it, why bother? Right. Um, right. So I, I think that, that made the difference. You know, I was able to include 100% of everything that I could find with nobody saying, well, let's leave out this one part or let's leave out that one part. Well, I mean that's yeah, that, and that's my point. I was trying to to get you to really emphasize that to the to the audience is that you you um, are able to craft a story based on historical record rather than well, you know. And again, this doesn't go for Slayer. This goes for any artist. The artist is going to go through your manuscript and say that's very nice, but we're not going to talk about that, or let's not include this. And I, I guess for me as a historian and as you as journalist, we're, we're interested in trying to deliver a, an approximation of the historical truth of the past. There's never, never, you can never re fully recapture what happened in the past, obviously, but we try our best to get as close as we can get. And, and knowing that any artist is going to want to be very, very careful about controlling what is out there that they put their name on. I think, I think it doesn't deliver value to the reader in the way that I think some people imagine it does. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. I mean, uh, just completely theoretical example. Gene Simmons is not going to, in fact, nobody, nobody in the whole world. I mean, think about it. If you were telling the story or if you were explaining why you got fired at your last job or why anybody's telling the story, nobody is going to say, well, Hey, Greg, Here's, uh, here's a version of the story that, frankly, uh, shows a lot of my character flaws and shows that, you know, when push comes to shove, I'm a moron. Right. Um, people just don't communicate that way. Right. Right. It's, you know, I'm not even accusing people of being deceiving. It's just natural. You're always going to leave out the part that casts you in the question. Right. And again, that's again, that's not a knock on any any artist or a, not knocking Slayer because I don't know what they would have would have done, but my point is only that when as a fan anyone reading this book you're going to get a much richer fuller story of what actually happened all the warts the good and the bad coming from dx ferris rather than dx ferris and slayer that's my point yeah i hope so i think so i i think that's i think that's right that that's i mean certainly the operating premise of the book well good um one of the other things i, I thought was uh really clear as I worked my way through all of the chapters is that there are a lot of what I call them urban legends about Slayer, about when tours took place, even when albums were released that were sort of propagated on the internet and they were incorrect and you kind of had to go through and and re uh, basically reconstruct an actual timeline of the band's path and really kind of fix some of these mistakes. And you, you talk a little bit about that in your process and how that came about? Yeah, I mean, I don't... I don't consider myself a card-waving historian, but at a certain point, you have to kind of put on that hat. Right. I mean, did, did the Ultimate Revenge tour happen in 1984 or 1985? Um, as the information is passed around the world, one little mistake 
and it, you know, it's certainly it's easy to make mistakes, uh, but once that little mistake enters the record, it's passed on and repeated. Right. Um, you know, Hella Waits around the time of its release is widely credited as selling 100,000 copies. Uh, that was 10,000, actually. Um, right. But, you know, you're hitting zero a few times as you type out 100,000. Maybe somebody was exaggerating at some point. Maybe somebody just hit an extra zero. So now, as far as the... The incorrect historical record is concerned. Hellaway sold a hundred thousand copies. Well, no, it didn't. It sold around ten thousand. Um, then, as you read Slayer tour stories, you hear these great stories about uh, in San Diego, this guy jumped off the balcony and went through the stage. He almost killed Jeff Hanneman. Right. Um, well. I mean, that's a great story. I wanted to get as much detail about that as I could, maybe turn it into a scene. And the more people that I talked to, they said, yeah, I was there. I don't really remember that. Right. Yeah, I toured with the band for a few years. I never heard that story. Um, and then you actually look at the theater that it happened on. And, man, for a guy to jump from the balcony to the stage, I mean, that's a good 20 feet horizontal. Right, right. Without a and rope, you, that's not you, happening, right? Yeah, you don't have, like, a really good runway up to that either. So, you know, <laughs> even if you had state-of-the-art drugs to enhance your performance, as many people in metal shows do, nobody jumped through the stage at that particular show and jumped through and almost killed Jeff Hanneman and crashed through it. Uh, it's a great story. But, I mean, that speaks to the legend of Slayer, you know, right. all of these things that are borderline unbelievable happened, right? right. You think about Slayer Live in 1985 or, or whatever, you think, yeah, I can see that. I can see how a guy would jump off a balcony and crash through. Well, and that didn't actually happen, but great story. Well, I want to make sure we give our, our, our listeners, especially those who presumably are downloading this because they're fans of heavy metal, a couple of, of um, really great stories from your book. I want to give you a chance to tell them, um, you know, when I was uh, in high school and you were in high school, of course, one of the things I always associated with heavy metal is violence. You know, fans are violent. It, it inspires people to listen to the music and become violent. But the, the, uh, the two um, shows that you detail in the book from the mid-80s, I think 1988, but correct me if I'm wrong, from the Hollywood Palladium and then the Felt Forum, uh, yes. those were classically violent. I mean, if there was ever like a dictionary definition of a violent heavy metal show, those two would probably be the first two entries. Can you talk a little bit about those two shows and how you put together those stories of those events? Yeah, uh, 1988 was, I mean, all respect to Slayer and their incredible career. And maybe it was because I saw the band on that tour, but I think 1988 South of Heaven was in some ways the band at its peak. You know, it was still playing these shows where, you know, certainly not in New York. In New York, they played the Felt Forum. Uh, in Los Angeles, they played the, uh, the Palladium, which holds 3,700. But by the time they got to Pittsburgh, where I lived, they were playing a roller rink, city limits, that held, maybe it was cleared to hold 600 people. I'm pretty sure there were more than that there, because uh, it was one of those shows where you could pick up your feet and not fall over, and the crowd would just continue pressing you. So on that tour, a lot of crazy stuff happened. Both of those shows you mentioned, the Palladium, and the felt forum, those are remembered as riots. Um, it's not exactly correct, but you certainly understand why they are remembered as riots. In the Palladium show in Los Angeles, uh, uh, pretty much a hometown show, a riot happened outside the show. And I mean, it was just ridiculously, I mean, I didn't grow up in Los Angeles. I didn't grow up in a in an area where people were complaining about police brutality and, you know, it was, it's always been kind of academic or it's the kind of thing you see on TV to me. I didn't grow sure. up in that. And what happened outside the Slayer show was really some Rodney King stuff. You know, if, if you remember that image of uh, the Henry Rollins book, getting the van, that has a line of police officers, uh, in riot gear, marching into a Black Flag concert, it was exactly like that. I mean, literally, you have a riot squad marching in line outside a Slayer show. What happened at that particular one, I mean, accounts vary. Um, it was sold out. Too many people were outside. They wanted in. They couldn't get in. Slayer mania ensued. So they staged a riot. I mean, people were running around in the streets. Um, 
they were definitely way out of line. I mean, like throwing rocks, breaking doors. And eventually the security staff got tired of it and started actively engaging them, we'll say. I mean, guys the size of the Incredible Hulk just chasing down Slayer fans. And the LAPD show up and they just start cracking skulls almost literally. I mean, uh, you can see videotape of it where an officer has a kid kneeling down by a car, just kneeling down independently. The kid has his hands behind his back. The officer has him, he's holding him by the shoulder somewhere. And the officer is just cracking him in the spine with a baton, by a baton. I mean, that's something I actually saw footage of. It's unbelievable to me. I didn't grow up in an area like that. And that's the kind of madness that went on outside of that Slayer show. Now, that's not... Slayer inside saying, start a riot, go crazy. Right. Slayer were just doing their thing. There were some very uh, uh, wound up fans, we'll say, outside, and uh, crazy stuff happened. Well, you know, the, um, the, the location there and the time, Hollywood 1988, that was uh, what I would call, what we call today, hair metal or just glam metal capital and kind of ground zero at that moment. And of course, as you make clear in your book, Slayer never felt comfortable in Hollywood. And to have this sort of event take place in, uh, in that location at that time is really, really remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. And then in New York, it was definitely a lot more uh, rough and tumble. Uh, the famous Felt Forum show happened. And um, they didn't quite stop the show, but Araya constantly had to ask the audience to settle down, and they were not. You know, I talked to... Uh, Someone was there. I read accounts. I've seen the video. Um, at some point, people started cutting the seat cushions open and just whizzing them around. So it looks like you're kind of spending a day at the beach, except Slayer's playing the concert. And you have these big white things whizzing around like seagulls. It's amazing to watch. And uh, by all accounts, there was just a feeling of menace in the air. Not like, oh, this is a concert. This is exciting. Like, wow, people here are crazy. Somebody is going to get hurt. So that's the kind of energy that Slayer brought to the show in, uh, in the golden age. The, uh, from Slayer's perspective, I'm sure they were not happy. I imagine they had to pay for the damage to the seats. But on the other hand, this is the type of thing that made headlines in newspapers and just burnished the band's reputation. It just Yeah, it was funny. Uh, when they announced the fall 2013 tour, they kind of played it up, but kind of didn't. They made a big deal in the press release about Slayer returns to the Felt Forum after 25 years, and Slayer returns to the Palladium, but they didn't exactly say why. Right. So they people in the know could say, well, they're coming back after the big riot that destroyed the place. Right. Uh, but they didn't go quite so far as to spell that out. It's, it's a big deal. Why? Eh, you know, things... Yeah, because obviously I, you don't want to encourage people to, let's restage the good old days and no, no. have another riot, just like you used to. But we will be playing the Antichrist, so come see that. Well, I thought we would um, begin to, to wrap up by talking about the, the the future of Slayer. And can you can you sketch out for those folks listening about the um, the last couple of years in Slayer in terms of personnel changes and the passing of a, of a key founding member? And then where do you think things go from here? Yeah, I mean, Slayer, um, you know, when I wrote my previous Slayer book, one of the wonders of Slayer, maybe the chief one, was that it was the same band. I mean, Lombardo, the drummer, had left and come back and left and come back. But essentially, when you thought of Slayer, it was those same four guys, which is really, uh, it's a rare thing. You know, as I do the math in the book, only... 9%, I think 9 or 10%, maybe 11%, 9, 10, 11% of rock and roll Hall of Fame bands have entered the Rock Hall without ever changing numbers. Um, so, I mean, certainly the 9 out of 10 bands change members, it happens. And Slayer kept doing what they do and kept doing it with more or less the same people for 20 out of 30 years. Uh, to round out the numbers a little bit. So that was one of the great things about Slayer. Now, that has changed in the last couple of years. Uh, in late 2010, like, um, in late 2010, early 2011, uh, Jeff Hanneman is a bit 
by a spider and some, to put it mildly, some health complications ensue, and he only winds up playing with the band once more for his entire life, and that was just two songs at uh, a very significant concert. Uh, So he never returned. Uh, At that point, you know, the band had never played a show without him in 30 years, and that was one of the things that made Slayer an amazing institution. And the band made the decision to go on without him. Uh, Pretty controversial, because Slayer was always Slayer. Uh, Some people lost their minds about it. Um, that was almost a no-win situation, I think. I mean, how can you plug anybody else in the Slayer? Uh, but what they found was, what I think is the one possible correct answer to that impossible question. They recruited Gary Holt, uh, the main man, the guitarist, but certainly the leader of a band called Exodus that is one of those bands that when you talk about the big four, Exodus generally gets uh, you know, the most votes for five or six in the right. Testament, maybe, and is, in fact, older than all of the, the big four bands. It's, uh, Gary Hope has written, you know, not only is he a hell of a guitarist, but he has written part of every original Exodus track. Uh, Exodus has an incredible career, a lot like Slayer does. Not continuous, they took time off, but you know, they still make killer music. So Slayer recruited him to step in and sort of uh, fill in for him. Right. So for my money, by recruiting uh, Gary Holt, this guy who's an underground icon, the Slayer shows went from something you didn't need to see something you didn't need to see. Mm-hmm. Like Slayer playing with Gary Holt. Are you right. kidding me? I right. gotta see that. Um, so he has been playing since Hanneman um, took ill and, and is continuing to play with him since Hanneman passed, which is so unfortunate. Um, Kerry King ever said, or always said, if he returns to 100%, you know, if he can still do the gig, it's his. But we never had a chance to learn if he would or not. Uh, and then Dave Lombardo parted ways uh, with the band a little under a year ago now. There are some very controversial circumstances as well. Um, but now with Hanneman gone, I mean, Slayer cannot be what it used to be. Right. So they're continuing. Because what are they going to do? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a job. It's a business. Right. I mean, are they going to form a new band? Right. Um, Black Sabbath went through a lot more people. Part of what I do in the band is I or part of what I do in the book is I contribute, or I contrast, rather, uh, their career with Megadeth and Metallica right. and Anthrax and some other bands and look at how much turnover they had. And Slayer have as little turnover right. as possible. But they've had some, right. you know, not as much as Megadeth, certainly not as much as Anthrax. Right. They're continuing. Right. What are they going to do? Their friend died. But can they pull the plug on the band? to stop working and let his life's work fade away. They have decided to continue. And for me, I mean, nobody asked me. Um, I think that's the right thing to do. There is a sentiment out there, though, that the, the absence of Lombardo is uh, a bitter pill for fans to swallow. Am I correct about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people were very disappointed. You know, I certainly, going into it, I had um, one opinion about his career with the band and why he left and by the time I was done writing I had a, a different one right um, but you know a lot of people would like to see him back and I would like to see him back and maybe he should be back but you know, people are people there's a lot of bad blood there and um, I don't see it happening not anytime soon right and frankly you know I, I got his I got some final comments from him and the way he was talking, you know, he says his door is open if they ever want to make him a fair deal. But the way he said it, I think he knows that that door is closed. Right. And that's 100% conjecture, but I mean, you can read what he said and make up your own. Right. So you did get some comment from Lombardo. Yeah, I did. I did. Very. That was one of those things where, you know, so many things that made this book on another level. I mean, I was always giving a hundred percent to it. I was always really busting my butt to do it well, but so many of the things that made it bigger and better and remarkable just came through after the last possible minute. Right. And, uh, Lombardo's comments were one of those things where if I had published it when I wanted to, they wouldn't have been there. But fortunately I was able to kind of bend my deadline and, you know, blow past it. I wanted to release the book on Halloween. 
uh, I thought that would have been very appropriate, but uh, he didn't get back to me until afterwards. So I was able to get some final comments from him. Okay. The, uh, the off the wall question of the, of the podcast is going to be this and just stay with me on this. Cause I, I, uh, I would have never imagined this happening 10, 15 years ago, but, um, is there any chance you think that Slayer might continue without any original members? I say that because I've actually heard Gene Simmons say that, yeah, there might be a day where Kiss will tour, but there'll be no original members. And I, I, the more I sort of let that sort of marinate in my brain, as bad of an idea as I think that is, the more possible I think that is that bands will do that. No, I mean, looking forward, looking into the future, I think some bands will do that, certainly. I mean, KISS is very much the KISS experience. I mean, when you go see them, Tommy Thayer or whoever is very much uh, in the Ace Freely role. You know, he's not doing his thing. He's doing what Ace Freely right. did in 1976. And that's what you want to see. You know, the Misfits uh, can get away with having just the original basis because there's that visual layer to it. But Slayer, I don't think, is a band that could do that if they were interested in it. And to their credit, I, I don't think that they are interested in licensing the Slayer experience. Right. Right. So I think it will happen. I think you're totally right. You know, I think our grandchildren will be watching some kind of incarnation of Kiss, um, maybe some other acts. But uh, Slayer, I, I think you you got to go see them while you can. I think they'll be out for a while still, but... Uh, I don't think they would be here maybe a decade from now. Well, I and that's, that's a question that's still kind of up in the air. Right. Right. Well, I know you've, uh, you've been through, uh, the ringer and getting this, this book out. Um, and our typical final question we ask writers is what does the future hold for you in terms of writing projects? I know it's probably a little soon for you to sort of <laughs> come up with your next book idea, but what, what do you see yourself doing in the future in terms of writing? Man, I keep I keep saying that uh, I quit music writing. I mean, music writing is not what it used to be. Uh, certainly, we could probably talk about that for an hour. So I keep saying I'm done, and uh, I don't like it, and it's stupid, and it's undisciplined, and the field has no uh, no code. But here I am writing a music book. So what do I know? Uh, so there's that. I was going to write a novel over the uh, the previous year, but this kind of uh, took over my year. It consumed my life. It just wanted to happen. I have a couple teasers at the beginning of the book where I, I mentioned a couple different projects that I'm, I'm working on in different stages of development. And I think I'll see if people react to any of those. You know, if people like the idea of a rap rock book or maybe uh, you know, one of my other titles that I have up there, maybe I'll work on that. I know people say, eh, rap rock, I don't care about that. But, you know, I'd like to hear about your, your career as uh, an unusual kind of music writer who's always approached the business from a different angle. Well, you know, I don't believe in writing autobiographical stuff, but I think I could do it. Uh, so there's that. Uh, I'm going to publish a compilation of some of my terrible web comics that I, I doodle. I won't even call it drawing, but I'm going to publish a couple compilations of those. But as far as actual writing goes, uh, if the universe will let me, I plan to start working on a historical novel over the next year and uh, maybe some more journalism in the future. Well, we'll, we'll look for those. But um, I, I know I said I was going to be the last question, but I did have one more that what came to mind. Um, you probably have a number of people listening to this who are, who are writers themselves, obviously. Based on your experience of publishing through Amazon, would you would you ever publish a traditional press again? And what are your thoughts about the future of of publishing? I published, uh, you know, again, to recap it, I published this 100% independent uh, via Amazon and its outlets. Uh, Kindle for the electronic book and CreateSpace um, for the paperback. Um they're both amazing. They're both amazing. They have incredible customer service. I'm going to sound like I'm giving a commercial for them, but I'm very happy with them. Um, create space you can use to create top-notch paperbacks, incredibly reasonably priced. I mean, very, very, very cheap. Right. It's amazing. And it's not a simple process. I think. I think if you have ever worked on your college newspaper, you can certainly put together your own book, a good one, easily. And I think that's the way it's going to go. Um, as I was saying to you before we started rolling tape, I know a lot of smart people who've written books. None of them can make sense of their royalty statement without help. 
Amazon and its services are the only royalty statement that I have ever looked at and said, okay, I understand. I know how many books were published. I know how many my sales were. I know how much money I'm making this month. It's the only it's the only, only album that I've ever heard like that. It's amazing. Uh, part of what I did to offset this, I think you'll see this a lot more in the future, was I sold underwriting spots, which translate to full-page ads. Uh, you know, some some good places like Metal Sucks, uh, a metal news website called Metal Sucks. Uh, bought a full-page ad in there. Um, you know, a company called Blue Automatic that's a... Uh, makes non-lethal firearms accessories. Like if you have a gun and you want to shoot golf balls with it, they make it. Right. Uh, and they, they also do engineering consulting. Um, a website, a mutual friend of ours, Addicted to Vinyl, he bought a spot in. So I was able to, uh, you know, at the last minute I came into some really good photographs and that stuff costs money. So I was able to offset that pretty well by selling advertising. Um, if I had another month to work on the book and it was finished and done and I could show people all the great stuff I had, I know for a fact I could have sold seven, ten more of those right. and entirely financed the whole book without going into the red at all. Uh, and I think you're going to see a lot more of that and uh, people that aren't doing that should maybe look into it because, you know, unless, as we've talked about extensively uh, in email and in person, Unless you are an author and unless you're selling seven figures regularly, then editors are in the business of saying, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, it's too late to do that. No, let's take your vision and change it to this to try to make the book appeal to people who aren't going to read it anyway. You know, Amazon's Kindle and CreateSpace are in the business of letting you do exactly what you want to do, exactly the way that you want to do it. Right. And if you have some kind of great vision or something shakes loose at the last minute, you can do that. There's nobody to say, eh, sorry, that would be nice, but uh, can't just put it on the blog. Put it on the blog, but we're not helping you with it all. Well, Slayer 66 and Two Thirds, the Jeff and Dave years by DX Ferris, is available on Amazon as an ebook and as a uh, paperback, which you can order as well. DX, how can people find you on the internet? Uh, the simplest way, if you look for DX Ferris, uh, you can go to me at Twitter, just DX Ferris, D-X-F-E-R-R-I-S at Twitter. Uh, you can go to Slayer Bio, and that will redirect you to the uh, to the Amazon pages. That's SlayerBio.com, like biography, SlayerBio.com. Um, and just Google me. That'll get you there. The SlayerBio.com is probably the quickest way to the book. And it's, it's doing well. People seem to like it. People yeah, are telling me that they, most people are reading it in three days and less, many of them in one. And I swear to you, it's a full-length book. They just seem to like it. Yeah, it's plenty long. It's definitely a, a very readable book. And uh, currently right now, because DX is too modest to say so, it's the number one book on Kindle, which is an amazing achievement. And so DX just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network with us, the New Books and Popular Music Podcast, and appreciate your time. Hey, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Please hey, check out the book. You're welcome. Thanks a lot, DX. Thanks, Greg. You just listened to a conversation with author DX Ferris about his book, Slayer, 66 and two-thirds, The Jeff and Dave Years. I'm your host, Greg Renoff, here on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for listening.